0: So, three years ago, uh, my family welcomed a German short haired pointer um, to come and to join in with our family. And as now I am apparently a dog breed snob, I've already told you more than you really wanted to know about my dog, right? So, so we brought this, this dog and we named her Cece. We brought her into our family. And, y'all, she's a specimen. I mean, just a specimen. I've, I've never seen anything like it. The way that she can run and move and how athletic she is. And so before we used to have a golf cart and one of the things that I would do sometimes to kind of help her burn off some energy because she's got energy, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I would take the golf cart and I would get the leash And we would put her on the leash, and I would drive around the neighborhood and let her run beside the golf cart. And we would do this for a couple of miles. And as long as I wanted to go, as far as I wanted to go, I would have the golf cart as fast as it could go. And she was the one having to idle herself back, to rein herself in, to keep me from dragging me in this golf cart. And she's just a specimen. But my favorite thing to see Cece do is to look out the window and it can be at any time in the morning, any time in the day, any time in the evening, whatever, to look out the window and all of a sudden she's stalking across our whole yard. There, there, there could be the tiniest little bird on whatever part of our yard and she spots it. And it's like her muscles lock up and every muscle is flexed and showing all of this definition and her, her, her tail goes out and her, her, her nose points forward and she looks like this creeping arrow across our yard. And it's spectacular. And one of the things that amazes me most about that is that she's never been trained to do it. She's never been asked to do it. I've never pointed to a bird and said, go, go figure out what to do. But I can remember her at eight weeks old, we brought her home and we would have like these little, these little bird, stuffed birds. And at eight weeks old, she would already begin trying to point her little toys. And what's amazing to me is not being trained. The truth is she doesn't really even know why she does it, Right. She just does it because it's what she does. She points because she's a pointer. It's instinctive to her. It's it's natural to her. It's the the overflow of who she is. And what we're going to see this morning is that Paul describes the Christian life. Paul describes Christian obedience. Paul describes Christian faithfulness in a similar way. That we don't obey so that we might become children of God. We obey instead because we are children of God. We do because we are. What we do flows out of who we are. So like a a pointer pointing at a bird, we as Christians live in the love of God, in obedience to God and faithfulness to God and in passion for God because we're Christians, because we're his children, because we have his spirit if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Or, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 4. When you get to Colossians chapter 3, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Colossians chapter 3, it says this. If then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth for you have died and your life is hidden with christ in god when christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory may god bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning you may be seated In Paul's mind, there is no concept more critical to living out the gospel in your life than the relationship between being and doing. The relationship between who you are and what you do. The relationship between your salvation in grace and your works in grace. In fact, the false gospels that he's addressing and the false gospels that we find in our own own society, in our own culture, in our own churches all seem to revolve around this very issue. Virtually every false gospel that you can imagine has to do with the relationship between salvation and works, the relationship between being and doing. There are some that would say, uh, have the false gospel of faith plus works. This would be where we would so, so distinctly separate from Catholic theology, where they say that, yes, you are saved by faith, but you are saved by faith that works, working faith. It is works plus faith coming together that brings you into the kingdom of God, where we stand with those great reformers who say, no, 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 no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's another there's another false gospel when it comes to works, though, and it's those who would say, you know what? It really, it really doesn't matter what I do. My works are irrelevant. My works are pointless. My obedience, my disobedience, it's all for naught. It's all totally irrelevant because I have the grace of Christ, because I have the good news of the gospel, because I can trust in him. But Paul would say in Romans chapter 6, does that mean that sin should abound so grace should abound all the more? By no means that is just as false as faith plus works that is the relationship between faith and works christian maturity and sanctification that so often our theology goes off the rails and it's the first of these that is really the occasion for the letter to the colossians for paul There was a theology that had broken out in the church at Colossae in which said that Christ was sufficient to save you, but Christ was not sufficient to keep you in the kingdom. That was dependent on you. That was dependent on how well you observed the Jewish rituals and the feasts and all of the ascetic requirements of the law. That if Christ brought you into the kingdom, you had to keep yourself in the kingdom. And Paul is here saying, no, no, absolutely, under no circumstances does your obedience save you or does your obedience keep you safe? Rather, your obedience is flowing out of who you are. That yes, your obedience is necessary, your obedience is critical, but it's because it reveals who you really are. It reveals your identity, whether or not you are actually a child of God, whether or not you were actually in the kingdom of God to begin with. And so I want us to look this morning at this relationship between being and doing. And the first thing that I want you to see is that our identity influences our direction. Our identity influences our direction. You'll notice that twice in our passage, we're given commandments, right? That, that twice in our, our passage, we're given these, these imperatives, set Set your heart on the things of earth. Set your desires on the things of earth. Seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. The other command that we get is set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So not only set your desires, but but set your perspective. Set your values by what you see. Let it be the preoccupation of of your mind. Let it be the passion of your heart. But what's ironic is, is that both times he anchors what we are to do and who he says that we are. And that's the part that we can miss. It's easy for us to say, all right, Paul, tell us what to do. But Paul says, I can't tell you what to do until first I explain to you who you are, because who you are influences who, what you ultimately do. So he says, yes, he says, seek the things that are above. That's what we're supposed to do. But it's because we have been raised with Christ. That's who we are. He says, set your minds on the things that are above. That, yes, is what we are to do. But but we set our minds on things that are above because we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That's who we are, that because we have died, because we have been raised, because we are hidden with Christ in God, because we ultimately will be revealed with him in his glory. Now we are to set our hearts on the things that are above and set our minds on the things that are above that our tra- the trajectory and the focus and the concentration and aim of our lives is utterly different than it used to be because we are utterly different than we used to be. And he talks about our identity in these comprehensive sense, if you notice that. He talks about who we became in the past, who we now are in Christ, and who we will one day be in Christ. He talks about it in the sense of past, present, and future. You'll notice that he says, you have been raised. You have died. He's talking about who we became when we met Christ. He's talking about that time in in the of your life in which you finally realize that it's Christ that makes the difference. That you can't measure up. That you can't be good enough or work hard enough or obey long enough. That you can't keep the law well enough. That you can't serve in soup kitchens enough. And you can't go and help your neighbor or help ladies across the street. You can't do any of those things enough so that it erases the rebellion of your heart and overcomes the penalty of your sin. No, you had to have Christ. And at the point that you met Christ in the past, there is a there is a transformation that happens, maybe not immediately in your behavior, maybe not immediately in your character, but immediately in your nature. Immediately in your identity of who you are, who Christ recognizes you to be as the great judge, who you are in the context of the society, church versus the world, who you are in the essence of who God has now made you, to be. you see, he says it two different ways, right? And he, gets, he says it a little bit out of order. He starts with, if you have then been raised or if you have been co-resurrected with Christ. And then he says in verse three, if you have died. Now, we would understand that, you know, you die before you're raised, right? Like, like death comes before resurrection. He leads with it because the resurrection is the leading edge of the Christian life. The resurrection is the hope of the Christian life. But the point that he's trying to make is that there was a point when, that, when you came to the realization that you needed Christ, when you came to the realization that you couldn't measure up, when you came to the realization that you couldn't do well enough, that you realized that, you know, my whole life I've been living for my own ambitions. For my whole life I've been living to satisfy my own appetites. For my whole life, I've tried to live according to my own wisdom. I've tried to measure up and I've tried to, to obtain all the things that I could obtain. And I've tried to attain all the goals that I could attain. And I've tried, to, I've tried to make a lot and have friends and be thought of highly in my family and thought of highly in my community. I've done everything that I know to do. And what I've, ex- what I've discovered is that I'm just flat out exhausted That as hard as I try to measure up, I still see how far short I'm falling. That as hard as I try to work on being good, I still know the wickedness and the darkness that's in my heart. And so I look to Christ. I look to Christ who is actually holy. I look to Christ who is actually righteous. I look to Christ who actually measures up. I look to Christ who is actually obedient. And I say, Jesus, Jesus, I see your cross and I nail my efforts there. I leave the old ambitions that I have. I leave the old appetites that I have. I leave my own reputation and my own name and my own desires and the own, my own designs for my life. I take them and I put them to death. That to be saved, you cannot be saved if there has not been a time in your life in which you identified with Christ and his cross and say, I am putting the old me to death. I'm putting to death me running on the treadmill of works, trying to constantly measure up in the eyes of myself, my God, and my friends. And that would be a dreadful place to stop. But Christianity does not stop there. The gospel does not stop there. In fact, friends, that's why it's the good news. That's why it's the good news. Yes, we go and we lay down our desires. We lay down the designs of our own life. We lay down our own ambitions. We lay down our own goals. We lay down the way that we expected and wanted our life to go on the cross, but we lay it down and we put that old person to death because in Christ Jesus, as we identify with him in the cross, we identify him in the resurrection. We go and we put that old self in the grave, but Christ, by the power of the gospel, through the glory of the Holy. Holy spirit raises us to walk in newness of life that's what this baptism was the picture this morning that's what this baptism was the picture of this baptism was the picture of an old person standing there dead in their trespasses hopeless apart from christ with no chance to pass through the judgment of glory being identified as they go under the water with the burial of jesus that old little girl has been put to death she has died but she didn't stay in the water very long because Jesus didn't stay in the grave very long she was raised out of that water and now she lives on a higher plane now she lives in newness of life now she's living a supernatural life filled with the Holy Spirit able to do what she once couldn't do because she now is who she once didn't used to be it's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. That's why I chose that as our start with the word passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Brothers and sisters, are you thankful that you're somebody new? You're somebody new. If you are in Christ, you are not who the world says you are. We could go back and we could interview every high school classmate that's in your yearbook and we could ask them who you are or or who you were in high school and what you did. And you know, whatever they came up with, however bad it was, none of that is who you are. We could go to all of your sorority sisters or all of your frat buddies and we could talk to them and ask them about who you are. And they might paint for us a picture that would embarrass you. But the truth is, is that if you are in Christ and the old you has been put to death and a new you has been raised, that's not who you are. Maybe the kids that grew up in your home would describe you one way. But today... If you are in Christ, he would describe you as somebody greater than what they would say, somebody different than what they would say, somebody that has been saved, someone that has been delivered, someone that has been made new. And that is Paul's point. That is the difference between, that's how being leads to doing. Here's what Paul's saying. You used to be an orphan, but now you're a child. You used to be dead, but now you're alive. You used to be a slave, but now you've been set free. You used to be diseased, but now you've been delivered. What person that was diseased and now healed would live the same? What person that had incurable cancer and was miraculously delivered would go and live their life in monotony, just plodding along? No, there would be exuberance and zeal and joy What slave set free would continue to live like a slave? What orphan adopted would continue to live like an an, an orphan? What, What peasant made a prince would continue to live according to the standards of a peasant? No, you are somebody new. You are somebody greater. You have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. You have a heritage in the family of God. So live like it. So live like it. It's your identity that determines what you do. It's your identity that should set the direction for the rest of your life. He doesn't just talk about what we became, though, does he, in the past? He talks about who we are right now, who we are in the present if we are, in fact, with Christ. He says your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now. That has always just been an enigma to me. Like I've, I've always just had difficulty understanding exactly what he means. And so I've thought a lot about this and I've read a lot about this. And, I've, and if I was to synthesize everything that I've thought about and meditated, as I've meditated upon this passage and uh, everything that I've read, this is the way I would describe what he's talking about here. You're living for a king that others don't know. And you're living for a kingdom that others can't see. You're living for a king that others don't know and you're living for a kingdom that others can't see. It's hidden from them. And because your king is hidden from them, because your kingdom is hidden from them, your way of life doesn't make sense to them. Your goals, your aims, your trajectories, your decision-making, your radical generosity, your, your ridiculous mercy, your kindness, your forgiveness, your patience, your goodness. Your your loyalty, your faithfulness, your humility. These things don't make sense to the world. They are hidden from the world because your king is hidden from their eyes. They have scales over their eyes because these things are discerned with spiritual eyes and their eyes have not been made spiritual. Their hearts are too hard so that the truth of God bounces off. They see him in all of the remarkable creation and yet they suppress the truth in their hearts. Your life is hidden. Your way of life is hidden. Your motivation for life is hidden. Your passion for life is hidden. Your identity is concealed from the world. Who you are, the world doesn't get. The world doesn't see because you are hidden with God. But do you notice how he relates the hiddenness of the Christian life from the world with the security that we have in the gospel? What does he say? He says that we are with Christ. You're hidden, but you're not hidden alone. You're hidden with Christ. And then he doubles down, man. That would be good enough for me. That would be good enough to sustain the church. That would be good enough to get you through your worst day. But he doesn't stop there. He says that you are hidden with Christ in God. You are with Christ. The world doesn't know. The world can't see. The world doesn't understand, but you know. You are in God. The world can't see God. They can't perceive God. Though God has revealed himself to them. But you know the world doesn't see, but you know. You live a life of faith, not by sight. You see, that's why as the world spirals out of control, as your friends are anxious and lobbying for position in the eyes of their boss, as they take selfies and project themselves all over Facebook, wanting likes and attention and needing someone to express value. That's why you can reject all of that. that. That's why you can do without all of that because you don't need it. Your life has been hidden. Do you remember the story of the ugly duckling? Most of you probably remember that, Right? You, you have this little bird and he's hanging out and he's among a lot of other little friend birds, you know, and they're swimming and, you, and everybody's clucking and swimming and, do, and he just is a little bit odd, you know? Like he looks a little bit different. He's a little bit different color and he can't, he can't quack like everybody else is quacking. And so it's like the harder that he tries to be a duck like everybody else, the more miserable his life becomes. The, the more, the more he becomes just disenfranchised with himself and disgusted with himself, and he tries harder and he tries harder, and all they do is just mock him more and mock him more and mock him more, until one day, he's gotten a little bit bigger, and he looks all of a sudden he's kind of grown into his his little web feet a little bit, you know. And there's a group of swans that come by, and they see him, and they say, "I've never seen a swan so beautiful." I've never seen a swan sing, swim with such elegance. I've never seen a swan carry its head with such dignity and honor and nobility. You see, that swan made a terrible duck, but a glorious swan. And Christ has made us swans in the, in the land of ducklings so that the world around us cannot understand and the world around us cannot make sense of it and the harder that we try to please them and the harder that we try to live and to impress them and the harder we work to blend into the world the more miserable and the more anxious and the more uh, the more worried we become but 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 in Christ he has made us something that is greater than what we were before in Christ he has made us somebody new in Christ He has made us somebody safe with Christ in God so that now, now we are able to to live with a nobility that is greater than ourselves. We are able to live with a dignity that is greater than ourselves. We are able to be patient in the midst of an impatient world. We are able to be kind in the midst of an unkind world. We are able to be loving in the midst of an unloving world. We are able to be gracious in the midst of an ungracious world, not because we are good, but because we are following after a kingdom that the world doesn't see. We are living for a king that they don't know. And he has made us somebody new and he has made us somebody safe. Being leads to doing. Who you are determines what you do. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just say that you're somebody new. He doesn't just say that you're somebody safe. He says you're somebody immortal. He says that you're somebody immortal. Wrap your mind around that, church. Listen to what he says. He says, you also, you you who can't get the laundry done, you who right now has a stack of dishes that you're already planning, your next excuse on why you're not gonna wash them this afternoon, you whose heart is racing out of control, you who is overcome by the work, you, you also will appear with him in glory. You see, it's hidden right now. It's hidden that you're with Christ, but it won't be hidden long. It won't be hidden long. That one day before everyone, it will be totally revealed and it will be evident and clear that you are with him. And you are either with him or he is against you. And you will be with him in a way that will not look humble and will not look meek and will not look as though you are the outcasts of the world, the ugly ducklings of the world. No, no, no. Instead, you will appear with him in glory. In glory. It will be clear that you were in the grip of your father and that no one can take you out. It will be clear that you are with Christ and Christ as the great judge, Christ as the great prophet, Christ as the great king will bring you to the feast of his wedding supper because you're somebody new. You're going to put on immortality on top of that which once was mortal. You're gonna put on that you are, that which is perishable, who is going to put on that which is imperishable. And that's why you can afford right now to live like a, what appears to be a foolish life to everybody else around you. Did you know fitting in is the death of biblical Christianity? Fitting in is the death of biblical Christianity. You cannot live a life that is hidden with Christ in God and still fit in with a world that doesn't see him, doesn't know him, doesn't love him and doesn't want him. You can't do it. And so if you need to fit in, if you need to have what your neighbors have and look like your neighbors look and, and be able to enjoy what your neighbor, neighbors enjoy, you are selling out to cheap because you're gonna have 80 years here, man, but you're gonna be there 800 billion years and it's just going to get started. And if you believe it, if you actually believe it, if you truly believe it, you can afford to go full bore all after it with Christ now. You can afford to put to death the old person on the cross so that you might be raised to walk in newness of life. You can afford to live in radical generosity and to uproot your family and to move to a different part of the world or a different part of the country. You can afford to go and love people that can't love you back or won't love you back. You can afford to lay down your life with Christ because it's only hidden for a little while. You are immortal. And it's this identity It's this being, it's this being new, it's this being safe, it's this being immortal that now leads us to what we're supposed to do. That, that is why we are to set our hearts on the things that are above. That is why we are to set our minds on the things that are above. That's why we're to set our lives to seek something different than everybody else is seeking and to live for something different than everybody else is living for. That is why. See, you obey God because you desire God. You, you do what God says, not because you want God to love you, but because you realize that he loves you and you love him. That's what he's talking about when he says, seek the things that are above. That's what he's talking about. Seeking the things that are above, it's, it, it's, it's, you, you could translate it literally to say delight in the things that are above. That is, let the joy of your heart be found in things that other people can't see. Let, let, the, let the pleasure of your life be found in the things that other people don't even care about, don't even understand, don't even want. That you're living your life on a higher plane, on a higher trajectory, in an upward, heavenward motion, so that everybody around you that isn't with Christ, that isn't in God, that hasn't been made new, sees you and they think you're crazy. It's honor God because you desire to honor him. It's living in a way that shows him as being greater than everything else. It's an inward desire, an inward desire that is expressed through an outward obedience. See, our desires, our desires direct our paths. You do what you do because you want to do it. You do what you do because you desire to do it. Many of you know that three years ago, I had to have a pretty significant uh, stomach intestinal surgery. And after that, I'm in, the, I'm in the, uh, the, the recovery room or whatever, and they begin to tell me that I have a, a, a drain and it went up my nose and all the way down into my stomach. And you're welcome for that picture. <laughs> and they told me though, that part of, with par, part of the deal with that was is that I couldn't drink any water. I couldn't even have ice chips, Okay. And it went like that for three days, okay? Now, I'm getting fluids through the IV, but my mouth and tongue doesn't know anything about the IV. You know what I'm saying? And so everybody else is dreaming of Hawaiian vacations. They're dreaming of going to the Super Bowl. I'm dreaming of a cup of ice chips, you know? Like and, and I'm like, Megan would walk in and I'd be like, you know, I think they said it's okay now. I think they said that I could have some now. You know, I, I'd be trying to deceive her and deceive my mom and play, play on sympathy and do everything. Because it was all that I could think about. It was all that I desired. When you're thirsty for water, there is nothing else in your life that matters in that moment. You will sell everything that you have for a cup of water when you get thirsty enough. You know, I think that's the picture that Paul's painting here. That that's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. It's to have, it's to live your life thirsty. To live your life thirsty. To have an insatiable thirst for the things of god to have an insatiable thirst for the goodness of god to have an insatiable thirst that wherever god is you want to be there and whatever god can show you you want to see it and whatever is true about god you want to know it and where wherever the people of god you want to be among them so that you can praise him and be be strengthened and be encouraged and move forward are you thirsty are you thirsty Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? The idea here is not not just to seek. It is to keep on seeking. It is to seek yesterday. It is to seek this morning. It is to seek, seek this evening. And it is to start over and to seek all against yesterday. That is, it's not just being thirsty today and having that thirst quenched. It is to stay thirsty. It is to always be thirsty That as good as the goodness of God has been, you want to see more of his goodness. That is as much of his majesty as you've tasted, you want to taste more of his majesty. And you can't hide that. You can't conceal that. When you're thirsty for the things of God, you'll find your feet going to the things that please God. You'll find your hands in the things that please God. You'll find your, your, your words reflecting the things that please God, that what you are thirsty will determine where you go, the things that you are longing for and the things that you're looking for and the things that you're selling out for, the things that you're giving your soul for. If we were to look at your life, if we were to look at your life, what would your path say about what you desire? What would your path say about what you desire? What would the things that you find yourself in, the conversations that you're having, the the places that you're going, what would they say that you desire? Would they say that you desire a promotion and not intimacy with Christ? Would they say that you are always thinking about your kids and never about God? Would they say that you're obsessed with having a marriage or having a perfect marriage or having a better marriage and not having a greater passion for the kingdom of God? You see, none of those things are wrong and none of those things are bad, but this is about order and all of those are out of order. Jesus says that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will take care of themselves. That is lean into your identity in Christ. Lean into your thirst for the kingdom of God. Lean into your thirst for the things of God and Christ will take care of all the other paths in your life. That brings us to the final imperative that he gives to us. When he says, set your minds on the things that are above. That it won't just affect the desires of your heart, it will affect the preoccupation of your mind. That who we are will change the way that we think and the way that we think will change the the things that we do. That he's talking about thinking in such a way that it begins to shape your value system. That it shapes your worldviews that it shapes the mechanism in your life through which you make decisions, that you are preoccupied with the kingdom of God. You are preoccupied with the things of God. You are obsessed with the thoughts of God, so much so that you begin to see the world as he sees the world and think of the world as he thinks of the world and think of your life as he thinks of your life, that you begin to view everything through the lens of the gospel, the lens of who God is, so that our values determine our steps so that our values determine our decision-making, so that our values determine our priorities, determines that which we cut out and that which we keep. The actions of your life are the products of your thoughts. They are the overflow spilling out in your life. There was a preacher and he lived in the 1600s, one of my, my favorite preachers, name, his name is John Owen, one of the Puritan writers. And he asked a simple, profound question that should cut us to the quick. He asked this, he said, what do you think about when you're not thinking about anything in particular? What is the resting thought of your heart? What is the resting thought of your mind? When you're all alone and there's nothing to be worried about and and, and you're riding down the road, what is the default thought that you have? Is it Alabama football? Is it the 2020 recruiting class? Is it the kids' homework or the ball practice that you need to go to? Is it how much money you're going to have at the end of the month or how many bills are going to be paid? Is it what is the boss going to think about this and how's my review going to look there? Or do you find yourself drifting into the glory of God? Do you find yourself having resting thoughts of the goodness of Christ? You you find yourself drifting into the gospel so that you can be reminded again and again of who you used to be, but who you now are and who God has made you to be, that you might live worthy of the name that he has given to you, a name that is greater than every other name. You see, if you're gonna forgive people that you're tempted to hate and you're gonna pray for your enemies your mind better drift into the grace of God toward you. If in your life, you're gonna be generous, radically so, and you're not gonna buy things that you want and you're gonna give things away that you don't have to, your mind better be drifting into the generosity of God toward you and all God has given toward you. If you're going to live a life that is going to make you socially unacceptable or socially awkward or a social outcast, your mind better be drifting into that day in which you're Your relationship with God will no longer be hidden and the glory that will ultimately be revealed so that you can say with Paul, it was all worth it. It was transient. It was passing this light momentary affliction when I compared it to the glory that was to be revealed. If you're going to live a life of obedience, if you're going to live a life without anxiety, If you're going to live a life that has peace if you're going to live a life that's going to have joy if you're going to have live a life in which your conscience is clear you're going to have to live a life in which the preoccupation of your mind is with the things and the glory and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ it's the only hope for weak sinners like us this morning if we had a screen and on that screen we could put all of your desires and all of your values, and all of the paths that you're taking, and all the things that you're doing, what would it say about your heart? What would it say about your life? What would it say about who you believe yourself to be in Christ? Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.